Welcome, everyone, to the Fantastics Inside of Baseball podcast here on InsideOfBaseball.com. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. I'm Lou Blassie, along with Brandon Cameron from Fantastics and InsideOfBaseball.com. By the way, if you do subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify, Spotify, you know when the new episodes drop. If you don't subscribe to us on those services, then you're going to have to kind of keep visiting the site at InsideOfBaseball.com, which isn't too bad, Brandon, because we've got stuff up there every day, don't we? We do. We're uh, we're rolling at this point. Um, the whole team's involved, and so uh, we've got a lot to present. Yep. So you can head up to InsideOfBaseball.com and the baseball blog. There are preseason notes every day going out there, analytic articles, and uh, some of our uh, save metric notes on starting pitching that Anthony put up a little while ago. You're going to want to check that out. But you're going to get the latest up-to-date information as you go into your drafts. And, of course, the Draft Advisory Program is also available at Fantastics and InsideOfBaseball.com. I thought we'd start out today for people who haven't gone to the blog and haven't got into the preseason notes because they're a pretty valuable asset here and it's free to non-subscribers during the course of the season. We do a ton of player notes every day that come to our subscribers inboxes, more, more or less what you're going to hear about today that we're talking about and that you can see on the blog during the season, you get a sample of like five of those notes uh, on the blog during the course of the day and the subscribers get the rest. But uh, here in the preseason, the preseason notes are out and available for everyone. And basically what we're doing here in the draft season is keeping people abreast of what's going on. It's a news flow exercise, right? Yeah. And it allows us uh, to analyze the players a little bit deeper too. So um, we're, we're, we're giving you the news and notes of the day, but also providing some extra analysis within those notes and uh, you know, looking at, um, playing time, looking at, uh, ro- uh, you know, rotation, starting rotations and, and matchups and, uh, and things along those lines and, uh, providing, providing our, t- our, you know, classic fantastic statistical analysis, but also, um, giving you the latest news and notes, which is so important this day and age, uh, with, uh, you know, so many, you know, a lot of people doing a lot of drafts and you really have to keep up with that sort of stuff. Right. So again, up to the date, in, up to the minute information, and depending on when you're hearing this, we're going to be talking about uh, Brandon's latest preseason notes, which was the night before, the day before we uh, recorded this podcast. But there's going to be player plenty of preseason notes up there, up to the minute again with news flow. There are injury updates and in Brandon's piece on Shane Baz and James Paxton and John Gray and Vlad Jr. So if you're drafting today, you might want to. I'm just teasing you because it's not that big a deal. Don't worry. <laughs> but you might want to find out what that's going, what what that's all about. But you want to find out the latest news. And news flow is not just uh, injury news. It's also we're getting some playing time insights and things like that. Uh, there are some roles that are up for grabs. There are some players that could be stealthy values if they win some roles and some playing time. Correct. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that we kind of can parse out throughout these uh, throughout this month. You know, for instance, and we're not going to get deep into this, but, you know, I wrote about briefly Ryan McMahon because with Brendan Rogers injury, looks like they're going to play Ryan McMahon at second base. He's been playing second base in spring training. Uh, a little nugget that you could have that maybe some of your, uh, you know, league opponents don't have is they're going to see him as third base only in the draft room. Uh, but he should acquire second base eligibility here, you know, depending on your format, you know, 10 games in maybe to the season, maybe less for some. Uh, so, you know, just things like that that are important to to take note of uh, that we recognize 
you know, at this point in spring training that, again, uh, you look in the draft room, you're just going to see third base eligibility for him. Yeah, and if you're doing daily transactions, that position eligibility is so important. It adds value to a player because you can get, some, you know, getting extra at bats because the guy has some versatility in the middle infield and the corner infield uh, is extra at bats. And on the offensive side of most leagues, depending on your format, the more at bats, the better, right? Most offensive stats are cumulative, so you want to get as many at bats as you can. Yeah, we're looking at this point, uh, you know, at what the if if a guy's injured, what does that mean for everybody else? Um, you know, first of all, yes, what does that guy's injury mean for him and for his status and and, and a little brief analysis and statistic and statistical analysis of him, but also what does his absence mean for everybody else? So, like in Colorado's sake, it looks like McMahon's going to move over to second, uh, more playing time for other guys at third base. So, so we go into that. So those are the sorts of things that you're going to be able to get ad- in addition to our, our just you know typical statistical analysis. All right, let's start with your note about Anthony DeSclafini because this is a playing role, news flow type of situation, and it could be an injury situation. If an injury opens up, all of a sudden Anthony's uh, value might change drastically, and I know everybody's going, why are we talking about this? I mean, he's not even in rotation. He's got no value. Why am I even thinking about him? You know, the thing of it is, is Desclafani would be a starter on most teams. Um, obviously, he's had injury issues and certainly last year, um, but he's a starter. I, I still have trouble imagining him not getting a starting role. But you look at that Giants rotation and they have five guys ahead of him right now. Um, doesn't mean he can't win the job. He, he's got to beat out Alex Wood, Ross Stripling, or Sean Mania. We, we, we've, you know, all three of them right now, I would say in the pecking order are ahead of him. Um, but I do think that Desclafani has an opportunity and right off the bat, you know, he, he throws two scoreless innings with three strikeouts, only allowing one hit, um, to regulars. It was Rockies regulars. Rockies aren't very good, but still notable that it was to regulars, um, generally, generally regulars, um, in his first spring training, uh, game, uh, which was on Friday. And, and I just, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like Desclafani has been a starter his whole career. He's, he's got starter stuff the question is, is he healthy? And when you throw, you know, two scoreless innings, three strikeouts, that kind of at least hints to me that he's somewhat healthy. Now let's see how he progresses over um, the length of this preseason. Uh, this is one of those uh, stadiums that doesn't have all stat cast, uh, all the stat cast set up. So we weren't able to get all the stat cast information on his stars. But I just wonder if Desclafani is able to earn that fifth role. And that's just a, you know, when you get late into the drafts for, for deeper leagues and you're really looking to build depth at your starting rotation, I know a lot of people are looking at Desclafani. And either you're going to get great value on him because people don't see him in the starting rotation, or you're going to get screwed up <laughs> with a pick of a guy who ends up as a long reliever. Um, it, it, it's a risk. But I do think there's upside because I think he's a solid starting pitcher when, if he gets the opportunity. Now, he, he he gives up ground balls. He doesn't strike out a ton of guys. And the Giants have a bad defense. That's something to know with, with any of their ground ball pitchers. That could impact his success. I still feel like there is enough there to provide some fantasy value. 
you ought to get him at a palatable price in terms of you know taking on that risk of whether he gets the job or not. I I, I don't think you're going to have to spend a ton for him. Let's look at we'll throw out 2020 because it was 2020, and we'll throw out uh, 2022 because it was an injury season. He only got 19 innings in, and 2021 in San Francisco 3.17 ERA. And what happens is San Francisco is a perfect park for him because where he struggled and he was an average starter, maybe a little hair below average. He was serviceable as a spot starter. Uh, in Cincinnati, but that played into his weakness, which is keeping the ball in the ballpark. He doesn't strike out a ton of guys, doesn't walk a ton of guys either, but he gives up home runs. But mo the move to San Francisco, he got his home runs down to 1.02 per nine. That brought the ERA down to 317. And yeah, that was a little bit below his ex-FIP. Uh, and it was 11% home to fly ball rate, which wasn't particularly favorable for him. But if he can get a starting role and get some innings, especially in that ballpark, it's going to work out kind of well for him. I, I think he could do well. And if you have him in a starter slot where you can kind of pick and choose your slots and he gets these starts in San Francisco against good opponents, he could be a very serviceable starting pitcher. I'll tell you what, if I had the knowledge that Desclafani was going to be a starter, I'm taking him over Sean Manaya. I'd actually rather have Desclafani over Sean Manaya in that Giants rotation. The question is, who's going to be the starter. And I, I think it's going to be Mania right now, which is obviously what, which would put his value above. But, but if, you know, we were in a vacuum and, and both guys were starting and I just knew that, then I would actually prefer to have the desk funny. So it, it's kind of a tough situation, but I do think, you know, again, you get him a value. I mean, most people are right now, you look at roster resource and he's not in the starting rotation. So most people are seeing that and they're just not drafting him as such. I, don't think it's impossible. He gets start. He gets a starting rotation spot. So, I just think you get the opportunity to get some value. And again, he looked pretty good in that first start. And you know, I read some reports of uh, beat writers who were there at the start, and they say he, his stuff looked good. He looked confident. So, you know, if he continues to do that throughout the spring, he's going to get a starting job. And he's also going to be next in line, even if he doesn't coming out of the spring, coming off an injury plague season. There might be a situation, a short season with only 19 innings pitched. There might be a situation where let's work this guy out of the bullpen for a little bit, conserve his innings and find a role for him. Because you know how baseball people think, generally speaking, if we have got a surplus at a particular position, the game's going to work itself out as we go forward. Someone's going to get hurt. There's going to be a need for something. So they might just want to start him out a little bit slow and conserve his innings because I don't think even in the uh, most optimistic situation, they're going to run him out for 180 innings pitch. They're going to, he's going to be limited. Yeah, no question about it. And, and, and for sure he's going to get starts. I, I think that's a certainty. Um, the question is how many, uh, and I mean, you made a good point. Four of the five starters in that giants rotation are over 30. Um, pretty much all of them have had some injury issues in their past. So I, I mean, certainly possible one of them gets injured, but, but I think even if that didn't happen, there, there's going to be opportunities for starts, but certainly you'd rather have him be more regularly starting. Um, and, and maybe, you know, you're in a league where it's, it's better to just keep an eye on him on the, you know, free agent wire on the waiver wire. Um, just somebody to keep an eye on. I, I don't think the door is closed on Desclafani. Um, I, I still think he has an opportunity to provide some value. We're talking about Brandon's preseason notes, which was the day before we recorded this podcast. And there are going to be plenty of notes if you listen to this to a little a little later. So go check it out. And a little bit later in, in the podcast here, we're going to be talking about contact 
rate. And we'll, I'll t we'll tell you why we're going to uh, talk to you about that, because we think it may become an important stat again. It hasn't been an important stat for a few years, but we think it might be trending back towards an important rate. And we'll talk about some players. I just wanted you to know what we have coming up here. And I was remiss at the beginning in the setup, not telling you what we're going to be talking about mainly today. Let's go to St. Louis, though. Paul Goldschmidt, and you used the term, you used age regression with Paul Goldschmidt, but I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it. So I'll give everybody the context. I think most of uh, his profile shows no age regression and, and, and there's, you know, I mean, he's still waiting for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, he's coming off MVP season. He was incredible last year. Um, there are, what, what is notable to me is that in drafts, he's not being drafted as the NL MVP. He's not being drafted to hit 317 with 35 home runs, which he did last year. Uh, also drove in 115 runs. Um, he was incredible last year, and that he he that would be you know borderline first round pick, uh, 317, 35 home runs. Uh, he's not being drafted as such. So why? Um, there's there's still a lot to like about what Goldschmidt's doing. Um, you know his quality of contact was still solid, um, kind of right in line with where he's been. Uh, for the most part, his, his batting eye walk strikeouts were, you know, pretty much right in line with where he's been. Um, and then obviously the numbers were great. His, his BABIP was high, but, uh, you know, he hits the ball hard. He, he does kind of what you want him to do. So I'm not super worried about that. Even if his batting average were to come down a little bit, he's, he hit 317 last year. Um, what is notable, um, and, and it's just something that kind of jumps off the page, is uh, for me, it's it's how he's hitting the ball. Paul Goldschmidt's one of those power hitters that doesn't hit for home runs. You know, he, he's he's going to get a lot of home runs. He's had a lot of home runs in his career um, because he hits the ball so hard and he hits the ball so well. Um, but he's more of just a line drive hitter. That's what he's been throughout his career, and that's why part of the reason his uh, batting average has always been so good he doesn't, you know, have this huge launch angle that's trying to aim for the fences uh, like some guys in the game. He, he really just is trying to hit the ball and, and get doubles and stuff, but sometimes that ball is going to go over the fence. Um, but last year, his line drive rate was down. It was under 20% for only the second time in his career. His sweet spot percentage, that's a thats a statistic on uh, that StatCast provides that I kind of like. It's really about hitting the ball at a certain launching, like a line drive angle, basically. Um, that where when you hit it at that angle, the batting average tends to be really high because it's at an angle that mm -hmm. is going to go over the heads of, of the infielders, but, you know, land for a base hit in the outfield. Uh, but his sweet spot percentage was a career low, 31.8%. Um, look, that, that is a subtle sign. This is, this is a bit nitpicking. I get it. But to me, it is something notable because it, it it's what Goldschmidt's been so good at throughout his career is hitting those line drives. It's down. Um, he, he did hit a little bit more of a higher launch angle. It also explains why his batting average expected batting average was 56 points lower than its actual batting average. Um, I think fantasy owners are oftentimes, especially early in draft season, fairly savvy. And so I think they are recognizing that Goldschmidt's probably not going to repeat what he did last year. Um, that doesn't mean he's not going to put up another great season. Look, he's still hitting the ball hard. He's still a great hitter. Another 30 homer campaign, 100 RBIs, well within reach this year. Um, but 317 batting average, maybe a little bit of a drop in some of those other statistics. I think I think that's probably where we're headed. 
this is where these stats become so valuable because in Utah expected batting average, he expected slugging was nearly a hundred points lower than his actual slugging. And it was his lowest, second lowest expected slugging percentage since they started keeping the stat. And normally what we look for with age regression or what I used to look for with age regression on hitters is they start to lose their plate discipline a little bit, a little more swing and miss, a little bit more chase because they have to commit to the pitch a little bit earlier. And often that leads to a higher pull percentage. And, you know, maybe if they're reaching for power, it might be a higher fly ball percentage. None of those are there with Paul. There are no signs in the traditional ways that we kind of look for age regression where a, pit, where a hitter is uh, starting to have to commit a little bit earlier because his reflexes aren't quite up to snuff. So when you start to look at the stats you looked at, that's why it's so confusing because I'm looking at Paul Goldschmidt with the traditional ways I look for age regression. I'm going, I don't see much going on here, but that expected slugging is where it shows up. And the stats you talked about, sweet spot, lower line drive percentage, real interesting um, take on this because that applies to skill set as well. Very, very much so. So when you see a dip like that and we'll see, maybe it'll return this year, maybe something else was going on. I don't know, but it's interesting but I, I agree with you. It's kind of nitpicking at this point, and I wouldn't be worried about age regression uh, until we see some real uh, strong signs of it. And there are no strong signs of it right now. No, and that that's something that's really important to reiterate. And and I am nitpicking. Um, that's that's some sometimes what we do. And so um, it, it is not that I am down on Goldschmidt, and uh, and I think that Goldschmidt would you know is a great pick as your as your number one first baseman, and you're going to feel really good when Goldschmidt's your number one first baseman. But should he be in the same conversation as Freddie Freeman, even though he had a better season? I would say right now I'm, I, I would rather have Freddie Freeman, and, and you know certainly you've got guys like Vlad and, and even Pete Alonso going ahead of him. Um, if you look at last year, you'd say, well, Goldschmidt had a better year than all of them, but. I I do think that it's fair to draft those guys ahead of him. That being said, I think 30 homers and 100 RBIs, I'd put that in the bank. Um, yeah, I, for 2023, I still think he's great. But 2023, we still feel very confident about him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, yeah, he's great. Uh, I, the batting average, I, I wouldn't expect another 317 batting average. Um, I'd feel, you know, very beneficial if he did that. But, um, but yeah, no, you feel great. I mean, he's he's a number one first baseman. First baseman, there's no question about it. And we're lauding 2022, and we should. Of course, it was a great campaign. But by a lot of indications and a lot of ways we look at things, it wasn't as good as this 2021 campaign. True. You, you, you could call it slippage. It's almost laughable because the result stats were so good. And it wasn't a ton of slippage, of course. But you could almost compare the two and say, geez, I'd kind of rather have the 2021 season. Yeah, and that's just one of those things where, you know, there's some luck that plays into things. And there's just <laughs> the ball bounces one way. The ball bounces this way. He hits a couple of those balls in certain parks where it's more benefit you know i mean it, it, he had 35 home runs in 2022 31 in, in 2021 that could have flipped I, I mean you have a little bit of luck here and there um you, you know things work your way so all in all um winds blowing out one day <laughs> winds blowing in the other day you know it all kind of just uh based on you know uh, minor things but yeah. He did hit the ball better in 2021. Um, that was actually arguably his best hitting year in terms of just quality contact and things like that. Um, he's still great. He's still wonderful. Uh, he's had an incredible career. And uh, I think he's going to have another good year this year. I just you know wouldn't expect a 317 batting average. 
the girl across the diamond and Nolan Arenado in St. Louis. And here's another guy who based on ADP has been underdrafted or maybe not getting the respect he deserves. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had also a great year last year, hit 293 with 30 home runs, uh, maybe overlooked with the Cardinals uh, just because of Goldschmidt and what Goldschmidt was able to do. There was a period there where the, the one of the, like the conversation was between the two of them for MVP. Arnado slipped a bit as, as the season went on. Um, still, you know, this is the same sort of thing. We're still, we're nitpicking a bit on Arnado. He's a great third baseman. He's a great, you know, you're doing great if he's your starting third baseman and there's nothing wrong with that. That being said, um, you know, the 294 batting average, again, I'm going to go back to the batting average, uh, is more the question to me than the 30 home runs. Arnado is a guy who doesn't have the quality of contact, doesn't hit the ball as hard as, as say, Goldschmidt um, or or some other power hitters. He's he's actually really, besides his first year that of Statcast, never had a, a average exit velocity over ninety miles per hour. It's been close, but very close. But uh, generally sits around eighty nine. That's that's fine, but that's not elite. Um, his barrel percentage is always in single digits. Um, his hard hit rate kind of below forty percent. So again more average quality of contact numbers rather than elite quality of contact numbers. Uh, so I remember all the talk we had about him moving out of Colorado and looking at those quality of contact numbers and wondering how it was going to play in St. Louis. So that concern has been there for a while. Yeah, but he still managed to hit 30 plus homers. And a large part of that is he hits so many fly balls. He hits so many fly balls and pulls the ball so much. Uh, it's like Altuve in a bigger body. Um, and so you hit that many fly balls, you know, with even average quality of contacts, some of those balls are going to go out of the park. Um, and eventually 30 or so of them are going to go out of the park. And that's kind of been what it, what it's been with him again, a very different player than, than Goldschmidt in terms of, you know, offensive approach. Uh, Arnado does not hit the balls hard and isn't sort of that line drive hitter that, it is just so powerful that the ball is going to go out of the park. He he, he kind of has to pull the ball and and, and try to jack it out of the yeah. park. Yeah, he's um, a he's a slugger type of he's got a slugger type of profile. He pulls the ball, he lifts the ball, he, re, he reaches for power, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. He he plays the power game. Goldschmidt doesn't. Goldschmidt hits the ball and it goes out. And really, where we see that, and this is kind of where we we factor in the statistics or the analytics, is that usually impacts Babbitt. So it's why Goldschmidt's Career Babbitt, I'm pulling it up right now. Goldschmidt's career Babbitt's 350, 349. Arenado's is 292. So a huge difference in Babbitt because, again, Goldschmidt's line drive approach is perfect for getting hits. When he puts the ball in play, he's he's hitting it at an angle that is going to tend to go go down for a hit. Three fifty, that's really elite for Babip. Arenado's is below three hundred because he hits so many fly balls. Those if they don't go out of the park, and remember, Babip doesn't even factor in balls that are home runs. Uh, so balls in play, a lot of those are going to be caught because fly balls are caught a lot, and so his Babip's two ninety two. So when you look at last year. He had a 290 Babbitt, which again is right in line with his career norms. Uh, but uh, he had a higher, but since he's been in St. Louis, you know, it was 249 the year before. Once he gets out of, out of Colorado, that Babbitt's going to go down. So his yeah. career Babbitt's a little bit uh, because he was in Coors Field. Anyways, my point being 290 Babbitt, probably a bit high for his approach for a 48% pull rate, a 50% fly ball rate. 
and average quality of contact, I think that BABIP was pretty high. So when you see the 293 batting average, yeah. I, I question that. And again, his his batting average the year before, his first year in St. Louis was 255 with a 249 BABIP. I think that's more of where he should be. And so, again, one of these guys who, do I question the 30 home runs? No, he hits so many fly balls that that 30 home runs is very reasonable. I do question the batting average. I think you're okay questioning the 30 homers and not because of necessarily um, his performance level. What I've seen in the last couple of years is 593 at bats and 557 at bats. He's 31 years old. Uh, I don't know if you want to bet on 550 plus at bats again. So that's one of the things that could become variable in terms of the amount of home runs he hits. He is not, I'm, I'm not going to call him a borderline power guy, but you can see in his, what he's telling you is his approach has had to change in St. Louis. His pull rate is up considerably over Colorado. And his lift rate is up considerably over Colorado as well. So what he's doing is he's reaching for power a little bit. And the fact of the matter, it would be very easy to come up two or three home runs short of that 30. Doesn't mean it's it's not a knock on his skill set of who he is. It's just I think he's not he's not Gene Collis Stanton. He's not Aaron Judge. He's not muscling the ball out all over the place. Things have to go somewhat right for him in there. And I think if you got 50 less at-bats this year because of a stint on the DL, for example, or just bad luck on hitting a couple balls in a couple places that didn't go out three or four home runs. If he hadn't came up with 27 this year, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And I wouldn't even consider it a disappointment because I know who he is as a power hitter. It's he's not borderline, but he's not overwhelming as a power hitter either. And so that's why despite hitting 293 with 30 home runs last year, he's the sixth third baseman off the board is you know, the, those numbers are great numbers, and you would say, well, he's got to be the top two or three third baseman. No, he's sixth third baseman off the board, and I actually think, um, you know, that's where he should be. There, there, there is sort of a tier gap after Arnato. Um, you know, the top tiers, you know, or maybe the top two tiers include Arnato, and then it drops way off to Bregman. So sometimes you're in that, um, you're in that uh, desperation mode and you're like, I need a third baseman and Arnado's my guy. And if Arnado's your starting third baseman, you're fine. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but he is yeah. at the bottom of that tier. And to me, clearly yeah. at the bottom of that tier. A lot of that being sixth in the in the pecking order at third base has a lot to do with the five guys in front of him as opposed to him because there's five pretty solid players. You can question Bobby Witt with one year of track record if you want to, but he's got a tremendous amount of potential. Ramirez, Machado, Devers, Riley, do you have any qualms about them hitting 30 home runs this year? Absolutely not. Right. Yeah, I mean they're 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 definitely a tier. That's what I'm saying. You could argue he's actually the second tier or third tier. But he's clearly a tier ahead of Bregman, Alec Bohm, Matt Chapman, those sorts of guys. Um, so I understand the desperation mode. And that's where it's like safe third baseman, safe starting third baseman, Arnado's there. I mean, you know, again, you're feeling fine if Arnado's your third baseman. I just, again, wouldn't go crazy over him. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, um, you know, jump up uh, and, and try and draft him, you know, because he's going to hit another 30 to 35 homers with a 290 batting average. I, I he, 30 to 35 homers. I could understand. I wouldn't, I, I'm not going to bet on it, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me either. If he hits 293 again, I give up. I <laughs> basically, I, I don't have any faith at all in the 293 batting average. Not at all. Yeah. Again, he, he, he had luck with that Babbitt last year, even though it's not going to look like it. 
It's one of those things that's misleading. His BABIP was 290. His career BABIP's 292. You're like, well, he hit a BABIP the same. Coors Field, he spent almost his entire career in Coors Field. Coors Field BABIPs. We need to, I mean, maybe you know, what, what is the actual, uh, you know, rank you get in Coors Field BABIP? Yeah, I, get, I have no idea, but I would be shocked if it's not number one. It's a, Oh, it's a, yeah, it's definitely. Architect, so. and, and it probably bumps 20 to 30 points. Oh, you know? I would think so. Yeah. And but so it's a big factor and it explains you can't you have to take his career BABIP and you have to look if you're looking in his stat box, you have to look at his Colorado BABIPs with a little bit of a grain of salt and and understand that they're inflated because it is cause, which is such a great BABIP park. And to know you made this note is when he went to St. Louis, he started, you know, pulling more for home runs anyways. So more yeah, pull percentage, more of a fly ball percentage. So that's going to lower your BABIP. Anyway, so like his BABIP was already inflated in cores, and then it's going to go down even more because of the way he's approaching his at-bats. Uh, so again, his BABIP was 249 in 2021. That was his first year in St. Louis. I actually think that's probably where his BABIP should be about, 249, maybe two, maybe 250 or 60. And so, uh, you know, that's going to bring down that batting average at the end of the day. Sounds about right. Okay, so our topic on the serious show that we're doing uh, after we record this podcast, and uh, it was a topic that you picked, and I loved your reasoning for it. We're doing contact rate. Um, and why did you pick contact rate? Because I think it's great reasoning. Yeah, we're, we're just starting to see the game, you know, kind of pendulum swings back and forth. And I think we're starting to see it move a little bit away from three true outcomes. I don't think we're there. I think there's still going to be some three true outcome guys and there's going to be some games that kind of, you know, profile as three true outcome games. Um, but I think what we've actually seen over the last maybe year or two is, is a push away from that uh, for a variety of reasons. Yes. One of them is, you know, the, the change in the rules this year. But I even think if you look at what teams have invested in and you look at how teams are approaching their building their roster, uh, those three true outcome guys, those guys who have really been the three true outcome poster childs, are becoming less valued uh, among major league GMs, not just fantasy GMs. Um, and so I, I think what I picked today was contact rate because that is a classic like your contact rate kind of became less important with three true outcomes because you know we get guys who are just yeah. jacking home runs and it doesn't matter what how they're swinging you know two they have two strikes on them they're still swinging for the fences and so like in the past we used to look at contact rate and say 70 percent was kind of this somewhat magic number of like if you're below 70 percent contact rate i don't you know i don't want you, you, you i'm not interested in you uh, over 70%, I'll consider you. Uh, we kind of have pushed that out of the way a little bit, and, and we've actually valued highly a lot of guys who have been sub 70% contact rate because that's the way the game was, and they were still, still able to hit 30, 40 homers. Now I think we're starting to see the push back where I'm not saying you got to be over 70% for me to consider you in fantasy, but we're starting to look a little closer at that, and those guys who are below 70%, I'm, I'm, those concerns are coming back in. Yeah, our partner, Sky Dombrowski, has a great saying, which I love, where uh, sometimes being too early is in, indistinguishable from being wrong. And we may be projecting this a little bit. We might be a hair early on this trend, but uh, some of the players in the game today were the result of the three-true outcome game where strikeouts, people didn't care about strikeouts so much. Go hit the home runs. We'll absorb the strikeouts because we don't need to score by moving by productive out. We don't need to score by productive out. 
I think the game, and again, from last year to 2021, 700 less homers in a year. And I think we're working more and more towards that. And we're going to need more productive outs. I think it's going to change the game in terms of um, how detrimental strikeouts are to managers and management in general. I think it's going to change the game in terms of we're going to see better defensive infielders. So we're going to see middle infielders. We might go back to the situation where middle infielders don't have a ton of power. I think we're working in that direction. Whether we're too early or not, we can sit here and debate. But I think some of these guys and some of these guys are young, valuable guys. But let's start off with the poster child for this whole thing. And we talked forever about Joey Gallo, about the game coming to Joey Gallo, because Joey Gallo was basically a three-true outcome guy, especially with the shift in place. And now Joey Gallo may be becoming a dinosaur because of these changes we just talked about. Yeah, and I think Gallo's a great example of this. Well, first of all, he is, like you said, he's the poster child of the the, the definition of three-true outcomes. Uh, a guy who walks a ton, strikes out a ton, and hits a lot of home runs. And I think Gallo's interesting because – a few years ago when we were still very much in the thralls of, of the three true outcomes, Gallo was like considered one of the top players, you know? I mean, he was, he was kind of a valuable guy. He was, uh, he was hit, he hit 209 and 206 in 2017 and 18 with 40 homers each of those years, 41 and, and 17, 40, 40 and 18. Yeah, and it was give me 40 homers and I don't care how much you strike out. I don't care what your batting average is. Yeah. I mean, like th this is something that 20 years ago, nobody would have been accepting of that low 200s batting average as a middle of the order, like your guy. Gallo's like consider maybe the best hitter on that team. And it's like, uh, that was not acceptable. I think it's becoming less acceptable now. And it's why all of a sudden, like he's having trouble getting the job. Yep. And he was shipped around the last couple of years. He, he, you know, his, his role isn't any more guaranteed when he's that type of player. He, the last three years hit under 200. I mean, this is where he's at still kind of hit home. I mean, he hit 38 homers in 2021 last year. The homers were down, but the at-bats were down. Um, but I mean, he was so bad last year, 160 with 19 home runs. Yes. He still has a job. He's in Minnesota this year. Um, but it was a one year deal. Uh, his, his role, while I think he's going to get starts there, I don't think it's like a guaranteed 500 at bat sort of a situation. Um, he had a 61.5% contact rate last year. That was actually somewhat acceptable at the peak of three true outcomes, but it's really not anymore. Three straight years, again, with that average below the Mendoza line. Are we okay with that anymore? No. We're not. I just don't think that that's okay anymore. I think that that's a possibility of Gallo. It might not be long where he really is just a bat off the bench to maybe hit a home run, you know, late in the game or something like that. I don't think he's a regular anymore unless he – changes his approach, which at this stage of his career, I'm not sure he's going to. He does have a chance to reset in a new place in Minnesota, maybe a chance to earn a longer-term contract if he does show changes. But I just think the Joey Gallo profile is not acceptable anymore as an everyday starter. So the game's moving away from him from a little bit, but also his main skill set is becoming a little bit suspect, and we're working on smaller uh sample sizes of course but he had an ex average exit velocity of under 90 miles an hour that's not if you're going to strike out as much as he is and you're going to have to survive that batting average 
these that quality of contact has to be much better. His expected slugging was only 373 last year. When we're talking in his heyday, his expected slugging was 560, 544, 604, and 464 even last year. 373, this is all pretty borderline even for a power guy at this point. So, I mean, what is he really bringing? To, if he's not bringing that power and he's not bringing that elite quality of contact to the table, what is he bringing to the table? Yeah, and I wonder if if this is Joey Gallo realizing that he's got to change. And so he's, you know, last year might have been, a, last year was a bad year for him. I mean, yeah, it's been. ball went up, pole went up. He, it he, didn't look like an approach change to me. It didn't. And maybe it's because, you know, midseason, that's, that's tough and he's all in his head and, he, you know. Maybe that's what I'm saying. Maybe there's a chance for a reset in Minnesota, a, a, an off season to sort of realize like I, I got to change it and I got to you know work on this approach. I don't know. I think we're going to have to kind of see how things play out this year, which is why Minnesota gave him a one year contract. That's that's a you know no no risk deal for them sort of a thing, um, and we'll see how things go. He's he is only 29 years old. That's that's you know certainly in his peak to to still put up good years. I just he can't do it with this approach. It, it just isn't acceptable in the game anymore. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying is his contact rate throughout his career has been right around 60%. He's had years where it was below 60%. Yeah. This was something that, I mean, again, in, in 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't have even considered Joey Gallo, right? You right. would have looked at that contact rate. You would have said, I am not touching him in fantasy sports in fantasy baseball. But, you know, he was he was able to put up back to back years with 40 home runs. Uh, it was a little more acceptable at that point where I do think we're pulling away. And, you know, another way you see we're pulling away. You mentioned uh, defensive middle infield. I think that's a great point is look at the investments in defensive minded middle infielders this offseason. Right. Also. You know, at the height of three true outcomes, that was also, you know, paired with just every pitcher was throwing 100 miles per hour. And that was all we cared about because, again, it was just about strikeouts, strikeouts, strikeouts. We started to see some more investments in pitchers who don't necessarily throw 97, 98, um, but can, you know, have some good breaking stuff, have some good off speed stuff. So, again, the game is shifting slightly. Not that 100 mile per hour throwers aren't still valuable, not that guys who, hit 40 home runs aren't still valuable, but, uh, but the game is starting to move. And he ignited my worst nightmare yesterday in spring training against the Red Sox. And the Red Sox took the left fielder and put him in short, right? against Joey Gallo. <laughs> like I was hoping teams wouldn't be willing to do that, but I think Joey Gallo is so, it is such a unique, uh, well, I said he would have been a unicorn before, but now he's a dinosaur. His batting profile is such that, he might be one of the few players in the majors that teams can do that against. And I hope it doesn't become widespread because it just kind of defeats the whole purpose of, of suppressing the uh, uh, suppressing the uh, shift. But we're not here. Those all rules to get away from the three true outcomes aren't necessarily there to save Joey Gallo's career. They're, they're trying to get us to move away from the Joey Gallo type of player. Yeah, and you know, I I know a lot. I've heard people say, "Oh, Joey Gallo's the the you know guy who's going to benefit a ton from the changes in the shift rule." I'm not sure he's the guy who benefits the most because, again, no. his whole thing is just these high fly balls, and like with with or without the shift, those are going to be caught, like you know, or they're going to go out of the park. I mean. Yep. It, it, so it, I'm not really sure he's the guy. I, I think it's more the guys who hit more line drives. 
um, or, or or who hit the ball a little more on the ground, you know, to the pull side. Um, so I, there might be a slight boost to his 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 numbers because of the limitations of the shift. I don't think he gets as big a boost as some other guys, though. No, because I think uh, teams are going to pull that left fielder over and play short right field uh, over there, or however they're going to deploy it, whether the center field is going to be there or what, whatever it is. I think they're going to be able to run that against Joey Gallo, and I think I think I, he may be one of the last guys who sees the shift or, or sees that extensive a shift uh, going forward. I just think he's one of the last vestiges of the game, the 3-2 outcomes, and I don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah, and look, Joey Gallo's been able to parlay it into a, a, a career that, you know, in, in years past and generations past, he wouldn't have been able to. He would have been out of the league. All right, so Chris Taylor's on your list as well, and why are we talking about Chris Taylor? Well, you know, the, the, this is a guy who had a 76.3% contact rate in his first full season. That was that was in 2017. So he came into the league with like, oh, he makes okay contact and uh, had a contact rate over 70% in each of his first four, four full seasons. Uh, Chris Taylor is a guy that I think is on a lot of people's minds right now, with especially with the injury to Gavin Lux. Is um, I do think Chris Taylor is going to get you know a good number of at bats with with the Dodgers, and I think a lot of people are looking into him. Um, but he dipped below seventy percent contact rate in twenty twenty one, and then it dropped all the way to sixty two point one percent last year. I mean, just absolutely massive drop off from where he was earlier earlier in his career. Pretty much everything got worse last year for Taylor. He was a guy selling out for power. Pull rate went way up. Fly ball rate went way up. Those are sort of the metrics we look at when we're looking at guys selling out for power. Uh, and along with that, a massive step back in, in in swinging strike rate, which led to a predictable drop in mm -hmm. you know those those numbers in BABIP, um, and even worse, his quality of contact worsened. So selling out for power and still wasn't hitting the ball harder. Uh, only had ten home runs last year. That's not a guy who should be selling out for power. Um, Taylor is much more interesting as a line drive hitter who makes 70% or more contact. Uh, he is, I have little interest in him in the type of player he was trying to be last year for whatever reason he was trying to be that player. Um, was he playing for a contract in 2021, which he got, and then maybe trying to justify that deal in 2022. Now he's going into the second year of a four-year contract. Um, it possibly, uh, but I, I do think the playing time is going to be there now with Lux's injury, uh, but he, he's got to go back to that 70% contact rate. So he's a guy who I think the 70% contact rate is important and, and I'm interested if he's over and not interested if he's under. And what happens here, this looks like sometimes often we see this in the minor leagues where we see a prospect who's trying to gain the attention of the big club and they will start to reach for power a little bit. They get a little bit bored in the minors or feel they need a uh, need feel they need a promotion. And they need to do it by hitting some home runs. And we'll often see this reach for power in minor league careers in the high minors. What it looks like is he had two full seasons in 17 and 18 where he had a full time job and he hit 21 homers and he hit 17 homers and did really well. Lost playing time in 2019 at 366 at bats, 185 and 70. Didn't do all that well. Felt like this almost feels like a cry for attention the last two years where, you know, I've got to earn my time back. I've got to earn my status back in the organization. I've got to earn playing time. So I need to pull the ball and I need to reach for power a little bit because the last two years, you're absolutely right. Looks for looks like an all outreach for power. 
which hasn't been successful. No, yeah, I mean, he look, he hit 20 homers, had 13 stolen bases, hit 254 and 500 and a little over 500 at bats in 2021. That that got him a contract. It got him a long-term deal, which, you know, at this stage of his career was uh, probably a huge goal of his and and I don't know if he's going to get another deal like that in his career cuz he'll be 36 by the time this deal's up. Um but it, it, I, again, we it, it's hard to 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 understand to the intangibles of where his mental state was last year. Was he trying to justify it? The Dodgers were loaded last year. Was he just trying to find a spot into the starting lineup? I, you know, we don't know that, but there clearly was an approach change. And again, he he's just not the type of player who can have a 62% contact rate. I, I don't know if anybody is anymore. This is kind of what we're saying. But even Joey Gallo has a lot more power than Chris Taylor. <laughs> and so for him to be in a contact rate closer to where Joey Gallo's career contact rate is like, no, that that just sorry, Chris Taylor, like you, that's not you. So uh, he, he's got to get that contact rate up 70 percent or, or higher. And and then I'll have interest again. Um, but I'm not interested, even with a potential boost in playing time because of Lux's injury. Um you know, and remember Trey Turner's gone. So there are opportunities there for Chris Taylor, uh, but I'm not interested at that 62% contact rate. With enough playing time, however, and again, if he reach, if he backs off that approach to reach for power, brings the contact, he focuses a little bit more on contact, and the Dodgers ask him to play a different role, and he gets enough at bats. He's capable of a 2010 type season. I'm not betting on 20 homers, though. I think he'd have to get a ton of at bats to be too for you to feel good about him looking at 20 homers. 15, 10, something like that, if he gets 400 and 450 at-bats. And that's useful, but you have to keep in context what that is. Yeah, and, and you know, this is a guy who may not be drafted in in, in yep. some formats. And so this is one of those things where I, I would encourage fantasy owners, if, if they're really, really active on the waiver wire, and you're in a league where, you know, you can be active. You know, obviously, formats are different. I would just for that first month, keep an eye on his contact rate, you know, kind of put Chris Taylor, make a note of him and just watch his contact rate. If he is available on your waiver wire. And if it's sitting there at the 70%, I, I would maybe make a play on him. Um, but I, I think if he's still kind of sitting at that really low contact rate, then uh, again, I'm just, I'm not out. I'm out. I'm out on him. And last year, again, if you have daily transactions and you like position qualification types of things, he's qualified. He's going to qualify in most leagues at second base in the outfield, played three games at third and won at shortstop last year. So you never know with the way utility things go. If you have a single game qualification, he could be a useful player from that standpoint in just in terms of position qualification in a, a daily transaction league because you love these guys. You can move around. Oh, I love it. And that's one of the been one of the draws with Chris Taylor. And he should get shortstop eligibility because that's probably where he's going to play early in the season. So, yeah, to have a guy second short and outfield, I mean, that's really, really nice. And again, there is value there. And if he gets that contact rate up at 70 percent again, I, I, like you said, I think 2010 is within reach. And with that eligibility, then, yeah, there is great value there with Chris Taylor. But right now, um, I, I just I can't I can't buy in. All right. The biggest victim of COVID 
in uh, Major League Baseball might be J.D. Davis, who came over to the Mets in 2019 and had a pretty good season of 410 at-bats, hitting 307 with 22 homers. Uh, looked like he had regular playing time. Of course, the Mets went different directions in terms of bringing players in and spending some money. 2020, he might have been one of those guys that derailed. I was being a little facetious about that. But, uh, you know, different players got, were affected different ways and whether they lasted. But that was a career that at 2019 looked to be in pretty good shape, but he's having troubles. He's struggling to recover to get back to being a viable player at this point, especially in San Francisco. Yeah, like Taylor, Davis had established himself as a near-average contact hitter for the first three years of his career, but that uh, contact rate dropped precipitously <laughs> in 2021. I mean, he had only 179 at-bats, but still a contact rate at 61% is going to jump off the page even in a reduced number of at-bats. It did rebound slightly last year in about double the at-bats, but it's still well below 70%, and that's a concern. Um, what is not a concern is his quality of contact. I mean, he was, he crushed the ball last year. Um, and so man, if he could get that contact rate back to 70%, he could flash those numbers you referenced there with the Mets, uh, 307, 22 homers and 410 at bats. I mean, those, those are good numbers. Um, what's interesting career before 2020. Say that again. That was a good looking career before 2020. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people had interest in J.D. Davis. And I think, you know, as we entered 2020, a lot of people were buying in on J.D. Davis. Um, 2020 was not a great year um, to hit 247 and six home runs again. It was the COVID year. Um, then came back. He hit 285, uh, but the home runs weren't there. Only 179 at bats. Um, then goes to San Francisco. He hit 12 homers last year, 248. Like this is just not an exciting, you know, player anymore. And he's also his playing times very much in question. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's again, the thing of like his, his, that contact rate is just not acceptable for what it is. What's interesting with him is to see his Z contact rate, his contact rate in the zone, just plummet. 69% zone contact rate in 2021, 71% last year. That is, I mean, that's really low. That means his contact rate in the zone, we don't like a 69% contact rate overall. 69% yeah. contact rate in the zone is really problematic. What does that say? It strikes, right? Yeah. It hit him well. Yeah, and he he's just not there. So I, I don't know if this is a... I mean, honestly, it might be a vision thing sometimes, uh, but also just a, you know, a guy who's kind of lost his way a little bit um, because, yeah, I mean, this is a big change. His contact rate was fine the first real three, three full years of his career. But how do we reconcile uh, the different paths in his contact rate and his quality of contact? Because we would think they would travel together. And in this case, he had his best quality of contact year ever last year. Yeah, he crushed all the contact issues. Yeah, I, I mean this, this is a tough one. Um, this is a player that I, I wasn't sure I found an answer for. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I, it's, it's encouraging to see the way he hit the ball. I mean, 92 average exit velocity, 16% barrel rate. These are great numbers. 55% hard hit rate. I mean, th these are just really phenomenal numbers. 
Um, but a 65% contact rate and it just goes against what he was earlier in his yeah. career. So um, he's capable of it. So it with that, if he could contain, if he could keep that contact rate level, I mean, 92 average exit velocity. I mean, that's outstanding uh, quality of contact for him. Get back to his contact type of rates, his swinging strike striker rates, even his chase rates. He doesn't chase a ton, but it's worse than it was say a couple of years ago. He could get back to the hitter that he was, in terms of plate discipline and contact ability with that quality of contact, he could produce. And it's worth noting that this is not a guy who was selling out for power. No uh, pull rate was fine. Right in line. Fly ball rate was, you know, his fly ball rate was inflated slightly, but it's still pretty low. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I had trouble. What, what does it tell you? I don't know if I have an answer about that Z contact that really jumped out to me that all of a sudden he had this huge drop in contact rate on pitches inside the strike zone. Well, okay. So Skyla brought this up when we were talking about JD Davis and we were breaking down um, what we were breaking down exit velocity, because at 92.4, he's one of the highest exit velocity guys on the board. So when we were talking about that, he started relating it to vision, which is kind of what you started talking about. Could it be a vision problem? But again, it doesn't really address the dichotomy between those great quality. If you can't see the ball, you can't hit the ball. Well, theoretically, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And to hit those, yeah, to have those huge barrel rates and everything. I think that that, yeah, I'm not sure it is a vision thing. I also wonder, and I looked a little bit at how he's doing versus certain pitches. Um, he, he struggled a bit on off speed pitches, which he wasn't struggling as much. Maybe there's something there, but it wasn't like pitchers then started throwing him a ton of off-speed pitches. He was kind of getting the same number. So I'm not sure if it's, you know, you know, maybe pitchers have something. And this is where, look, I could take more time and spend, we could spend a whole podcast on J.D. Davis. We don't need to do that. Uh, look into, you know, approaches of where they're throwing it to him and have they identified a really weak spot in the strike zone that he has. Um, again, the, these numbers that we have, major league teams have pitching coaches have and they have more than us <laughs> and so the, that, it, would, that would belie a remarkable consistent uh consistency in hitting that hole you can find a hole in a player but your pitchers hmm. right you have to be a really you have to be a really good pitcher <laughs> and i'm looking one of the first things i looked at when you were talking about zone contact rate is i started looking at deployment because oftentimes pitchers will tell you what's going on with the hitter and there isn't a real dramatic change in employment. Curveballs are up a little bit. Change ball change ups are up a little bit, but not not extensively. It's not like can't hit an off speed pitch. Let's just feed them off speed pitches. It's not the way they went with them. So I I don't see anything in deployment that would indicate that they found a hole on a particular type of pitch. Whether there's a hole in the strike zone, well, okay, could be. But if so major league pitchers hit it with a remarkable amount of consistency. Yeah. And he's not like facing Max Scherzer every single time he's, you know I mean? Like there's not, there's pitchers who can't hit the same spot every single time. Right. And so he's, he's facing some of those pitchers. Uh, you know, maybe it's possible too, that we're overdoing it here and that he's had some small sample sizes. Again, 410 is his, his career best at bats. That was back in 2019. Under 200 in 2020, under 200 at bats in 2021, 318 last year. So maybe this is just a little bit of we're looking at numbers that are being, in, in, you know, impacted by small sample sizes, and, and and we're overdoing those ratios a little bit and those those percentages a little bit. Um, it, he's a hard he is a hard guy to figure out, and I've been approached with 
JD Davis and some of my drafts this season already of like, all right, it's a time where his ADP is kind of around here. What do I think? And I don't know what to think. He's, he's a guy I'm struggling with. I, I have some interest with that quality of contact. Well, I mean, I, that, that, it's really good. We've seen a player that's interesting in the past. And again, as you said, that quality of contact makes him enticing. Again, he's on a contract year. My concern about that is it could go a number of different ways. If he continues to be aggressive with uh, chase, if he can, and again, he doesn't chase a ton, but contact is an issue. If he continues to be aggressive to the point, maybe he's just gone to a max effort type of swing. And maybe that's controlled as a contract. I don't know. And that's his reach for power and max effort swing. If he continues to do that, to press for power for, in a contract year, I don't have much hope that that contact rate is going to improve. If he accepts a role and understands that he can be a much more productive player for the Giants, if he concentrates on contact a little bit more and we start to see that, then I'll be a little bit more excited because he doesn't have to reach for power with that quality and contact level. And he's had several seasons where he's averaged over 90 miles an hour in exit velocity. That's plenty of quality of contact that you don't have to reach for power. Just go out and hit the ball, be a productive player. Yeah, and this is again maybe one of those hitters like like we were saying with Chris Taylor, where uh, he's he's gonna be on the waiver wire in, in a lot of leagues, and so monitor him. You know, make a note and and see where that contact rate is sitting, and see what what he's doing over the first few weeks of the season, over the first month of the season, and if that contact rate's over seventy percent. Um, I, 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 I'm, I would take, say, take a chance on him. You know, again, this all depends on format, but if you have the ability to take a chance on a guy, um, I'm interested if that contact rates at 70, look, if you tell me right now, he's going to have a contact rate at 70%, I'm buying it. <laughs> all I, right. So that's one way you could do it. You could track it yourself or you could, uh, download the draft advisory program and join us for a season long subscription. And then the daily notes, we'll keep track of this type of thing for you because JD Davis is a guy that has come to the radar. Both my partners here on the Sirius XM uh, fantasy sports radio show and uh, here on the podcast. So we're going to be tracking this as we go along. And if that contact rate does come down, if he starts to put a little bit more emphasis on contact or solves whatever the issue is with his contact rate, he's going to be a productive player. We'll keep you informed of it as we go along because this is something we're tracking. That's it for the Fantastics Insider Baseball podcast for today. Again, if you're not on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify and don't subscribe, keep checking back here at InsiderBaseball.com because we're not working on a very regular schedule. Podcast comes up every three or four days. There are plenty of great information in all the preseason podcasts, so catch up on them if you've just found us. We'll talk to you next time on the Inside of Baseball podcast at Fantastics and InsiderBaseball.com. Oh, yeah. Let's go. Hey.